0: Hey everybody, this is Brent Kellogg, the pastor of Hillspring Church in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. and This is our podcast. Thanks for taking time to join us today. Our prayer is that this would inspire you, build your faith, and help you take the next step in Christ. Enjoy the message. Man! Woo. Y'all come ready to have some church today. We are wrapping up a series called Social Solutions. Finally! Eight weeks into this, I can say it without spewing on the front row. You know what I'm saying? And this message we're going to talk about today really is one of the reasons why I felt diving into the Old Testament book of Nehemiah really kind of pushed me. I believe God's got a strong word for you today. I believe you're here for such a time as this. We have made our way to Nehemiah chapter 8. So if you have your Bible and want to turn it on, that's where we're going to go. Uh, We'll also have it all up on the screen for you as well. But a quick study of the book of Nehemiah, you're like, wait a minute. There's actually 13 chapters. And so what I want to do is uh, what happens between chapter 8 and chapter 13 are kind of all just one big bundle. It's the same story. It just kind of keeps going. It's the story that never ends, right? So I want to just take a minute to kind of walk you through quickly, kind of give you the Cliff Notes versions of what happens in 9, 10, and and so on and so forth. So in chapter 9, which we'll get to just a little bit, it's a reminder of how we got here. And the story of Nehemiah is a rebuilding story. The city had been pretty much leveled. The walls around the city which provided safety and security, they had been destroyed. And it's a story of how we got there, what led to the destruction of Jerusalem. It's a reminder of the sin of their great-grandfathers and their forefathers and the damage that sin will do in our lives and the damage that sin will do in a generation. Chapter 10 is like in light of all that. Because of all of that sin and looking back on our story and what our, our forefathers did, we don't want to go back to that. And so chapter 10 is this beautiful telling of kind of this ceremony, this commitment back to God, commitment to our neighbors, commitment to our kids, to our families, that, hey, we're going to correct and we're going to do things the right way. Chapters 11 and 12 are kind of accounting, if you will. It's just a bunch of names. It's who returned back to Jerusalem. The book of Ezra is a parallel book with the book of Nehemiah, and it was about rebuilding the temple. Nehemiah is about rebuilding the wall, and and chapters 11 and 12 are the census, if you will. It's the people who were willing to come back, roll up their sleeves, and do the hard stuff to rebuild their city. And then there's chapter 13. It, It gets an asterisk. It's a little bit unique. It's an epilogue, if you will. Nehemiah had returned back to his job in government. He'd gone back to serve the Persian king Artaxerxes. He's built the wall, the temple's up and running, the people have kind of renewed their faith and their commitment to God and he leaves thinking, my work is done. They get it. They won't make the same mistakes again. They won't repeat the mistakes of their grandfathers and great-grandfathers. I saw them weep. I saw them. I heard with my own ears the promises and the vows they made to God. But then he gets word it's not good. Again, that didn't take long. They'd already gone back to their old habits, their old temptations and just sucked them right back in. Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 25 tells of his reaction when he returns to Jerusalem and find them going back to that old sinful lifestyle that had led to God removing his protection, It led to the destruction of Jerusalem. Let me put Nehemiah 13, 25 on the screen for you just to kind of show you Nehemiah's emotions. He said, so I confronted them And I called down curses on them. And I beat some of them and I pulled out their hair. I made them swear in the name of God that they would not let their children intermarry with the pagan people of the land. If you ever wanted to see a presidential candidate debate in the Bible, it's right there. You know what I'm saying? Too soon? Got it. (laughs) The reason the book of Nehemiah is important, yes, it's a rebuilding story. Yes, they're telling it who and how they rebuilt the wall, and the opposition they went through. But it's also the last great revival of the Old Testament. Throughout the story of the descendants of Abraham, there would be this cycle. And I just want to kind of unpack the cycle. that happens over and over and over and over again in the story of the Old Testament. So the cycle typically begins with God rescuing His people, God redeeming His people, like He did when they were slaves in Egypt. Like he did when they had been attacked by an, a nation that was an enemy nation. And, and the children of Israel were now oppressed and, and they were slaves of sort to their neighbors. And so God would rescue them. And the children of Israel understood what led them to that bad place. They understood it was our sin. We were the ones that stepped out from under God's protection. We were the ones that walked away. We were the ones that chased after the things that were sin. We wanted what we wanted. And then oppression would happen and destruction would happen. And you know, the first step to recovery, the first step to revival is not God, how could you? But it's why did we? And I I, I fear we live in a day and time where we're focused on the first question, God, how could you do this to us? And we completely ignore the second question of why why did we walk away? And we're ignoring the moral decay that erodes away at the faith of the fiber of our country. And so then God would come in and he would rescue his people and he would use a person. Sometimes it's a man. Sometimes it's a woman to bring correction and speak the message of God. And that person would be the energy behind the revival. But then a next generation would grow up. and, And they only reap the benefits of the revival. Like they didn't know about the hard times. They didn't know about what it was like to be oppressed. They didn't know what it was like to struggle. And their place lay in destitution and destruction. So there was this generation that would come along that only knew the benefits and blessing of God. They did not understand the price that was paid to see the hand of God move. And so, because they didn't understand what all it took to get there, small compromises began to creep in. And after that generation, another generation would come along. And the next generation will always take it further. Throughout the Old Testament, you will see this phrase, this verse, this idea that there grew up or there rose up a generation that knew not the Lord. And then the people of God would wake up one day, they're living outside of God's protection, they're chasing sin, they're giving into temptation, and they're absolutely living in moral decay again. And sometimes this cycle would take place over the course of hundreds of years. By the way, I, I think America is in this cycle. Let me just walk you through American history for just a little bit. A hundred years ago, the Roaring Twenties, America had been on the winning side of World War I. The economy was strong. Immorality was abundant. Money and power was the god of the day. Then the Great Depression hit. People didn't have money. People didn't have power. They had no place to go but to return to God and return to church. And there were great revivals that were recorded in the 1930s. There was a generation that was willing to pay the price to see revival and see God move. Their children grew up with the benefits and the blessing of God's presence. They didn't understand the price that their parents had paid. They still went to church. Faith was still very, very important. But compromise began to creep in. The parents, they knew the reason for revival. They knew the reason why we lived righteous. They knew why we made these changes. They knew why we would behave in a way that was according to God's rules, right? But they only handed off the rules, not the why. If you don't understand the why for the rules, you will produce rebellion from the rules. And that's what happened. And so that brought about the rebellion of the late 1960s and 1970s. And then the next generation came along and and will always take it further. And so rebellion now has turned into a way of living. I celebrate with Pastor Matt and what he shared this morning about kids and students that are being saved on Wednesday nights and kids that are being engaged in our small groups this is why I believe the next generation ministries are so important this is why we don't just go to any camp this is why we don't just let anybody that wants to come speak to our youth kids or come speak to our kids just hand over the microphone to anybody because we are calling out destiny in our kids lives we believe in this generation we believe this is the generation that can usher in revival if there's anyone that this message is for, it would be the young men and the young women of the church. God is looking for a man and God is looking for a woman that might catch fire and say, God, begin with me, no matter the cost, begin with me. So the book of Nehemiah, it's a playbook for how to deal with social issues. That's why we call this series Social Solutions. He dealt with social injustice. He dealt with economic issues. He dealt with critics. But the last part of Nehemiah is a roadmap to revival. That's why I felt like this message was such an important part of this series. And that's why this message kind of said, hey, this is the tipping point. I really think we need to look into Nehemiah. If there was ever a time that the church, if there was ever a time that our nation needed revival, it's today. And the last six chapters of Nehemiah describe the last great revival of the Old Testament. The book of Judges. If you've ever studied it out and so on and so forth, it is a book about that continuing cycle, that there would be a crisis or the children of Israel would be in oppression. God would rescue them. He'd send a person to kind of bring correction and energize the revival. God would bring revival and, and bring blessing. And then there would be a generation that didn't understand the price to get to revival, but they still lived in that blessing and compromise began to creep in. And then there would be another generation and then there grew up a generation that knew not the Lord. That's the constant story over and over and over in Judges. Matter of fact, with careful study of the Old Testament, I count there were 21 different revivals of this cycle that take place in the Old Testament. It kind of depends on what you do with Judges. Some guys count Judges as just one revival, but there's actually 13 cycles that take place in the book of Judges. 21 revivals. Now, I don't, maybe you're one of those people that think numbers in the Bible represent something and they can, they do sometimes. And, and so as I kept seeing this, I, as I was studying this, I kept seeing number 21, number 21, number 21, number 21. I thought, all right, I'll bite. You know, hey Siri, you know, I'll Google. You know, what's the number 21 represent the Bible? I looked at three or four different sources and they kept telling the same story. Inquiring minds want to know. I want to know, right? What does the number 21 represent in the Bible? If you're one of those that think that, listen, this is not in Scripture. There's not a hidden verse or code in Hezekiah or Obadiah, you know what I'm saying? Here we go. What does the number 31 represent in Scripture? There's this idea that it's a combination of the number 13 and 8 when you add those together. The number 13 typically represents sinful immorality, which is the bottom of the cycle. When added to the number 8, represents new beginnings. So if you look at that, the number 21 represents sinful immorality that's followed by new beginnings. 21 Old Testament revivals with Nehemiah being the last. What is revival? It's a big word. It's a great word. We love the word. It's an energizing word. It's renewed. It's energy. It's, I mean, it's kind of hard to describe what is revival. We just know we want it, right? One scholar said it this way. It, revival is the spirit of God working through the word of God In the people of God. It's the Spirit of God working through the Word of God in the lives of the people of God. If you're taking notes this morning, you'll notice on the back of your handout this morning, I I just, I didn't want you to fill in these blanks. It's just a lot. There are nine characteristics that these 21 revivals of the Old Testament share. So for those of you that are my history Bible scholars, and you like that stuff, you want to dig a little bit deeper, I thought, you know, I'm just going to list these for you. I want to quickly walk through these nine characteristics that all of the 21 Old Testament revivals shared. Number one, it occurred in a time of moral darkness and national oppression. That's the bottom of the cycle. Secondly, it began in the heart of one. It began in the heart of one consecrated servant of God who became an energizing power behind it. God would call a man. God would call a woman. God would use one person and they would catch fire and they would become the energizing force behind this revival. Number three, it rested on the Word of God. It didn't rest on emotions. It didn't rest on a leader's ability to stir a crowd. It didn't rest on a program. It rested on the Word of God. It was a result of proclaiming God's Word. Number four, it resulted in a return to worship. Number five, it resulted in the destruction of idols. In Old Testament times, it would be statues. It would be golden images. It would be handmade idols that they would literally worship. In our time, it could be things that take the place of God. Number six. There was a separation from sin. I've got to make some different choices. There was a purity, which led to seven. People return to obeying God's ways. God ways work every time. Number eight, there was a rest- restoration of joy and gladness. Then number nine, at the top, it would be followed by a time of national prosperity. Listen, I am not a name it and claim it preacher. I'm not. But when you utilize God's ways, there is a blessing for God's people. And so not only was there a spiritual renewal and a spiritual revival, but the nation benefited from that as well. 21 periods of the Old Testament have these nine characteristics in common, and Nehemiah is no different. So, what did they do? How did they get there? What did they do to usher in revival? What, is it, what does it look like? What does it take to tap into the Spirit of God, working through the Word of God and the lives of the people of God? How do we as a church, how do we get there? So I want to look at what happened for Nehemiah in his roadmap to revival. Let's go to chapter 8. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, the wall is built, the temple has been restored. Public worship was re-engaging. There's kind of a positive vibe in the city. People are feeling energized. They're kind of excited again. There's momentum going on. And so they just have this big national day of celebration. It's a ceremony. It's a ribbon cutting on the wall. It says this, All the people assembled with a unified purpose at the square just inside the water gate. They asked Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given for Israel to obey. The first thing, this first pillar in this road map to revival was the spirit of unity. We just read it. It said all the people. Not just the people that liked Nehemiah. Not just the people that voted the way Nehemiah voted. Not just the people that wanted the wall. Not just the people that worked on the wall. Not just the people that gave it. All. All of the people. And then it says they were unified in purpose. There is something about God's people working together that gets his attention. If you're a parent, you know this. Because you have that one day a year that your kids actually like each other and get along. Right? And maybe they're actually working on a project together. And so you start high-fiving yourself as parents because you think you've cracked the code. You know, you're going to start writing the book on how to parent with perfection. Right? You start writing your Parent of the Year Award acceptance speech. Right, There is something so powerful. There's something so anointed. When God's people walk together in unity, it gets His attention. And the Bible is full of these descriptions. It is full of these stories about what happens when the people of God come together and walk and work together in unity. It's so powerful. David wrote a song about it. Pastor Taron, one of my closest pastor friends, he pastors a church down in McAllister, was on this stage. That he, he kind of proclaimed Psalm 133 over us as a church. I look back on that moment as a significant moment for us as a church. This is David's song that he wrote about the power of unity. How wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony. For harmony is as precious as the anointing oil. That was poured over Aaron's head and it ran down his beard and onto the border of his robe. Harmony is as refreshing as the dew from Mount Hermon that falls on the mountains of Zion. And there the Lord has pronounced his blessing, even life everlasting. This says that unity... Is refreshing. You know what it's like to walk into a room where there's tension. Nobody's saying anything, but you can just feel it. And you know what it's like to walk into a room where there's just a unity. It's just life-giving. It's just refreshing. Unity carries an anointing on it. The Bible says that the Lord pronounces His blessing. The King James says there God commanded His blessing on His children. He is looking for a people that will love each other enough. Listen, I might not agree with you. I might not vote like you, but I'm going to walk in covenant you and I'm going to be humble enough and be committed enough to walk in unity. And when you do that, you get God's attention. Christians, be a unifier. If you want revival in your life, If you want revival in your time, in your generation, be a unifier. If you want to see the blessings of God, walk in covenant in unity with God's people. Nehemiah 8, verse 2. So on October 8th, Ezra the priest brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included the men and the women and all the children old enough to understand. Verse 3. He faced the square just inside the water gate from early morning until noon, And he read aloud to everyone who could understand. All the people listened closely to the book of the law. Do you remember that list, that characteristic thing? And these were all the characteristics. Remember one of those was how important the Word of God was? It was built on the Word of God, not built on emotions, not built on talent, not built on gifting, not built on how somebody can sing or stir a crowd. It's built on the Word of God. That's what you're reading right here. Ezra stands up. And he's declaring and he's preaching the word of God. Revival rests on the word of God. You can't have the revival of God without the word of God. Verse 6 Then Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people chanted, Amen. Amen. Clearly, not a Baptist church. Just going to go there, right? Sorry, I'm sorry. I can say that. Baptist, right? And he lifted their hands and they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So the second component of this Roadmap to Revival was a spirit of worship. It's a spirit of worship. This is not just singing. This is not just performance. This is not just pretty music and pretty lights. This is about a body of people that are filled with gratitude of what God has done for them. And God moved the heart of a wicked king named Artaxerxes to help the children of Israel. God had placed his man, Nehemiah, in a position of influence. God had provided everything they needed to rebuild the wall. God had given them strength. God had given them wisdom to deal with their critics and the opposition for doing this. In this moment of reading God's word, they are being reminded of their past of their father's sin, and their grandfather's sin, and their great-grandfather's sin. And they're being reminded of how bad their life was before Nehemiah showed up, and the mistakes that they had made, and the sin that they used to live in, and what a mess their lives used to be. And they were reminded of how great God is, and how merciful God still is today, that they, He took them and He set their feet... On solid rock and he pulled them out of the miry clay and I'm telling you that was enough to get them to get on their face and worship God and say thank you God my life used to be a mess but you've turned it into a message when we worship when we push through the fear of who's watching me when I realize all he's done for me God I just want to put myself out there for you I don't care who's looking. I just want to get on my knees. I just want to be broken before you, God. God, I just want to lift my hands with an attitude of gratitude and surrender. Psalm 22:3 3 says, but God, you are holy. Thou art holy. I love this. It says, "O thou that inhabits. One translation says, God, you're enthroned. God is seated on the praises of his people. God, you dwell in the praises of your people. It is the heart of worship that moves the hand of God. Verse 8, they read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read and helping the people understand each passage. Again, you see the presence of God's word being preached. They were reading it, they were preaching it, they were explaining it, and then something very powerful happens. Verse 9, Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, The Levites, who were interpreting for the people, said to them, Don't mourn or weep on such a day as this. For today is a sacred day before the Lord our God. For the people had all been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Catch that. There is a spirit of brokenness. For hours they had been listening to the word of God. For hours they have been listening to the teachings of Moses and and how God wanted His children to live and the choices that they were to make and the temptations they were to avoid. And they're listening to this and they're just weeping. There's this spirit of brokenness. They're convicted. It's our fault. We're responsible for the mess. Why would we move? God, we moved away. We stepped out from under Your covering and Your protection. We wanted what we wanted. And it cost us way more what we thought we'd ever have to pay, and we gave in to temptation, and we bought the lie that, that sin would be satisfying, and it wasn't. Verse 3 of chapter 9. They remained standing in place for three hours while the book of the law of the Lord, their God, was read aloud to them. Then for three more hours they confessed their sins, and they worshipped the Lord, their God. This is not brokenness because we got caught. Uh-oh. This is not brokenness because our life is a big mess. This is not brokenness because people are bullying me or being mean to me or she said this or he did that. This is not brokenness because of my circumstances. This is not brokenness because of how bad my life is. This is brokenness over sin. We never intended to get here. We never intended to wake up one day and our lives be engulfed in sin and our kids be fully immersed in an immoral lifestyle. This is a brokenness and a repentance. And at the core of that, they knew they had grieved the Spirit of God. Let me show it to you in the New Testament, Ephesians 4.30. It says, and listen, do not bring sorrow. Some of you maybe remember the older translation. It says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, He's identified you. You were one of his own children, guaranteeing you'll be saved on the day of redemption. This this brokenness is not an emotion. This is not being sad. This is not depression. This is a holy grief that I realize my great-grandfather, my grandfather, my daddy, I'm the one that stepped away. I'm the one that doesn't deserve second chances. But there's something so unique and something so beautiful about holy brokenness. It actually leads to joy. Now that don't make no sense. But this holy brokenness that the children of Israel are confessing their sins, God, we moved, we're the ones. we stepped out from under your. Position. it actually leads to joy. Only when you are truly broken can you appreciate the beauty of God's grace. Verse 10 of Nehemiah chapter 8. They've been weeping. they've been mourning. They've been convicted. And Nehemiah continued, listen, go celebrate. Feast with rich foods and sweet drinks and chips and salsa and tacos. Come on, somebody. And share gifts of food with people. Don't have anything prepared. This is a sacred day before the Lord our God. Don't be dejected and sad. I love this. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is Nehemiah's way of saying, okay, you get it. You've sensed it. You have sensed the Spirit of God convicting you. You get it. You don't want to go back there. You don't want to live in that mud and that muck and that mire anymore. You get it. But don't live there. Don't stay there. Don't get stuck in your past mistakes. Don't dwell on all the bad things you've done. Listen, the mercies of the Lord are new every morning. I love this statement. He said, listen, don't you get it? The joy of the Lord is your strength. Where's all my children's church from the 80s people at? Woo! The joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord. My favorite verse was, ha, 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 ha. ha I would breathing there, right? You know what I'm saying? Listen, there is power, and there is strength that comes from being a joy-filled, happy Christian. Matter of fact, this could be your best evangelistic tool. You show up to your job, that nobody likes, it's tough, it's hard, you got a grumpy boss, right? And you just show up with the joy of the Lord. And they look at you like, boy, what is the matter with you? And the next day you just come in and you're still smiling. And the next day you come in, you got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. I'm just getting the oldies with the goodies, right? No, really, what's the matter with you? Why are you always happy? I need that. Why why are you happy? And then it gives you this opportunity to say, let let me tell you why I'm happy. Because I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I can see. I once was dead, but Jesus made me alive. He forgave me, he saved me, he set me free, and he gave me purpose so I can dream again. And now every day that I live, I don't live for a paycheck, I live for his purpose. I don't live for money, I'm living to make a difference. And when you live that way, you watch revival break out at your work. Verse 28 of Nehemiah chapter 10 says, Then the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the pagan people of the land. Listen, we had some choices to make. We had some choices to make. And the things that used to pull me into a bad direction, the the places I used to go that caused me to sin, the, the conversations I never should have had. It says, listen, they separated themselves from those things. Their neighbors, they worshiped other gods. And they would always just kind of infiltrate their way. And next thing you know, there'd be a generation of... Kids of Abraham, that they would start worshiping those gods too. So, listen, they had to separate themselves from the pagan people of the land in order to obey the law of God. Sometimes you have to make choices so you can spiritually mature and grow. Together with their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who were old enough to understand, they joined their leaders and they bound themselves with an oath. Catch this they swore a curse on themselves if they failed to obey the law of God as issued by His servant Moses. They they didn't just promise, they solemnly promised to carefully follow all the commands, the regulations, and the decrees of the Lord, our Lord. Number four, they took on a spirit of obedience. If we're going to see revival, we got to make some pretty drastic changes. If we want to see the power of God, we got to make some pretty difficult choices. Listen, I can't live like the world and have revival in my life. You can't have your cake and eat it too. I can't have the things of the world and expect God to move in a mighty way. There is God's way and there is the world's way, and they are two completely different ways. They are not the same. So we, we take these notes and we write these down and we go, Unity? Yeah, we can do that. It's hard. We can do that. Worship, oh, I like that. That's good. Gives me the goosebumps. Mufasa, Who? I like worship. Brokenness, I get that. I get that. Obedience, and this is where our enthusiasm begins to fade. So you mean if I want more of God in my life, I got to make some choices? If I, if I want revival in my life, i got to give up some things. Listen, listen, eyeballs. I am not talking about getting saved. I am not talking about salvation. I am not talking about changing so you can be good enough that God would go, okay, I can save that one. Listen, you cannot be good enough for the grace and mercy of God. It is big. It is vast. I'm not talking about changing so I can earn salvation. You can't. You can only do that through a faith-filled relationship with Jesus Christ, believing Him, dying on the cross and raised from the dead, that was enough to save you. What I'm talking about is stepping into a place of revival, stepping into a place of Spirit-led living. There is an anointing. There is revival. That costs you everything. There's an old song that captures the power of what happens when we do that. What happens when we, when we turn away from the things of the world and we turn our eyes on Jesus? And turn your eyes on Jesus, look full in His wonderful face. Like, you can't look here and look here at the same time. I can't look at the things of the world and I just, I kind of grab a hold of the glory of God. I kind of grab a hold of the things of God. And it says this, and then the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Listen, as I focus on the face of Jesus, as I focus on the things of God, as I draw closer to God, my desire for the things of the world, they fade away. They were once desires to indulge in the things of the world. Now the Holy Spirit replaces that with the desire to embrace the things of God. Everybody say, I love. love. You, Brent. (laughs) Oh, Lord, here he comes. He's coming at me. Oh, help me, Jesus. This one's going to hurt, right? We love the grace teachings of the gospel. The American church today, we love the grace teachings of the gospel. It's easy. There's nothing I can do to qualify to be saved other than have the faith to embrace Jesus as my Lord and Savior. We love the generosity of God. We love the mercy of God. And I need it every day. Don't hear me say anything different. I am so grateful that I am not who I used to be. I'm so grateful for the mercy of God that is new every morning. And we love the grace message of God. But if we are going to see revival in our land, if we are going to see a church full of Holy Spirit power, God is looking for a group of people that will say, God, here we are, and we will obey your ways. Chapter 9, verse 5. Then the leaders of the Levites called out to the people, Stand up, praise the Lord your God, for He lives from everlasting to everlasting. Then they prayed. Eight weeks we've been in Nehemiah. Almost every week you've seen the idea of prayer. and This is more than, God is great and God is good, let us thank Him for our food. And I know, I know it's noon, right? You're like, I'd like to pray for some food. If you just shut up, we can get that on, right? <laughs> there's this spirit of prayer. Listen, there's a, this is more than y'all pray for mamaw. She's not doing well. Listen, there's a time and a place to pray for mamaw. I'm not saying, but this is more than just a bunch of requests. This is intentionally making prayer a priority to get alone with God There are time and place to tell God your needs. But listen, there's a part of prayer that's not about request. It's about relationship with Him. If all my marriage was, was me coming at Jerry and asking her for things. Could you, would you, did you, would you, would you, could you? And there is no abiding with her. There's no just being with her. There's no relationship with her. That's not much of a marriage. And all the women said amen. (laughs) We know there are things in our lives that are optional. And when they're optional, they easily get pushed to the side, right? Like getting kids to lessons on Tuesday, that's not optional because you've already paid for the whole month. You got to get the kids there, right? You know what I'm saying? And then there's getting the laundry done. That's not optional. Unless when it comes time to go to work and you want to dig in the dirty clothes pile, but I don't really want to go that way, right? Eating is not optional. Can I get an amen? But prayer, we have the best of intentions. But all too often it becomes optional. And this is what I say God will understand. The Bible says He knows my needs. But prayer's really not about needs, it's about knowing Him. And we have to make prayer a priority. Like, make it an appointment on your schedule. I don't know about you, but I live and die by my calendar on my phone. And the way my calendar functions, I don't know how your works, but when it pulls the month up, if there's something on that day, there's a little dot. So before I go to bed at night, I look at the dot on the next day, and I pull it up, and I'm reminded of what that day has tomorrow. And then when I wake up in the morning, the first thing, second thing I do is I look at that day because I don't even know how to dress because I don't remember what I read last night. I've slept since then, right? And there's this day, and I hit that dot, and all these things Populate Now, pet peeve, there's nothing worse than clicking on a day with a dot and then some weird holiday populates. Like, what in the heck is Kansas Day? Why is that a thing? You know what I'm saying? Who the heck is Maha Shivarat? I don't know. What is that? Why is that even on my calendar? I need to get that calendar off my phone, right? But if I did that, then I wouldn't know when it was time for Fourth of July. So I don't even know what to do with it. (laughs) Sooner fans will get that tomorrow. (laughs) Oh... So much for revival. <laughs> you got to make prayer priority. Unfortunately, it's optional. We have the best of intentions. I'm going to get up tomorrow 10 minutes early, 15 minutes early. And I'm going to spend some time, and I'm going to get to know God, and then mm, snooze takes over. The book of Nehemiah is lipping full of prayer. Nehemiah knew. The key to having success, when he would go before King Artaxerxes and say, could you help my people? He knew the key to success was prayer. He knew he couldn't rebuild a wall without prayer. He knew we couldn't bring revival without prayer. And my friends, prayer is the heavy lifting the Spirit of God working through the Word of God in the lives of the people of God. And if there was ever a time in our nation where nothing else is going to be a social solution, my friends, politics is not going to fix this. Policies aren't going to fix this. It's God's people seeking His face through prayer. What would it look like if a group of people walked in unity and said, listen, I might disagree with you, but love is greater. I'm going to walk in covenant. What would it look like if we leaned in worship passionately? What would it look like if we were truly broken over our sin and we were willing to make the hard changes? If we were willing to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit as He convicts us and gives up things in our lives that know aren't producing spiritual fruit, what if we truly were broken over those things in our life? What if we prayed until we saw God move. We have no idea what God wants to do on the other side of revival. Here's the deal. It's in my belly. I believe there's a great awakening that's coming. The cycle predicts it. It's repeated over and over and over in the Old Testament. It's repeated over and over and over in our nation why not you why not you be the one young people why not you why not you step up and say I'll be different in my generation I'll not give in to the things of the world I want to be used for God to bring revival in my lifetime." why not you Why not us as a church? Why not the city of Sand Springs? I love, I love the churches all across the city that are meeting. They're full. They're people praising God, people getting saved and ministering. We ain't in competition, Lord. We are here to see God change this city. Why not us? Why not Sand Springs? Why not Tulsa be the next place for the world's great awakening to take place? But all it takes is a few men and a few women. And sometimes it just begins with one that says, God, use me. I'll pay the price. I'll do the heavy lifting. I'll walk in unity. God, love will be bigger than disagreement. Why not me? Would you join me? Would you join me? Because I believe God wants to use this church and this city for such a time I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, there's a couple of things I want to invite you to do. First, hit the subscribe button. That way you won't miss a single episode. Secondly, if this message has impacted you and you would like to help us reach others, visit our website at hillspring.tv and hit the Give Now button so that we can take this message around the globe. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.